Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. Today, we're discussing with Willem competitive sale of land in the Dutch case of Didem and networking for young academics. Welcome to Bestech, the public procurement podcast. In this podcast, Dr. Willem Janssen and Dr. Marta Andorf discuss public procurement law issues, their love of food and academic life. In each episode, Willem, Marta, and their guests search for answers to intriguing public procurement questions. This is Bestech. Let's dish up public procurement law. Hello, my co-host. How are you? Hey, Marta. I just, um, I think we just realized we haven't seen each other in two years. Yeah, I think <laughs> we have a we have a long long distance sort of through electronic means relationship, Willem. It's a, it's, it's a, a long very, distance academic relationship. It's a very 22nd century already. You you uh, won't ex- see each other for a long time, but you will uh, talk to each other often. Exactly. I've, I have no idea if you still have legs, but look, other than that, it's been great podcasting you with go. you over the last two years. Let's <laughs> let's see where we see each other finally in person, right? But um, sure. today we have quite uh, quite a slightly different approach. And, and what I mean by that is that... Um, during our main course, our main theme for the podcast, when we discuss public procurement issue, we actually will look a little bit into a specific new case, a national case from Netherlands, and sort of connected to procurement a little bit outside. And Willem, I would let you um, to sort of lead on this and tell us a little bit more why why actually we're looking specifically into, into that case, what sort of lies behind it. Um. Yeah, so I think what's um, it, it always fascinates me. Maybe to start off with that, it always fascinates me to hear from about national cases, whether they're French, Polish, Italian, or Spanish, to see what actually happens with EU law in practice, right? Uh, how the national courts assess it, um, and, and what goes on there, because not everything reaches, I suppose, the the Court of Justice in the end. Um, actually, perhaps, probably majority, right? Probably actually majority of issues do not. Uh have a chance to be considered yeah, by the exactly because if in the end the, the, the whether it's the, the last court of instance decides based on Silford case law that it's not necessary to ask those preliminary questions or if there's no infringement procedure right then you know it can, can keep going on for years and years um, uh, particularly and this is the 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 playing field that we're talking about today when there's no when this uh, when there's a scenario that falls outside the scope of the public procurement directive so we're talking today about a competitive um, a duty in case of uh, a sale of land um, and the Court of Justice has clearly said in 2010 in the the, the milestone case of Helmut Müller that such a uh, an award of uh, land falls outside the scope of the public procurement directive. So we're really looking at national law today, and I promise I'll make it as exciting as possible to talk about Dutch. <laughs> a, Dutch a sale of land, law. exciting can be right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, but I think the underlying question really is, and that's where it gets a bit more fundamental. And we'll mostly talk about that case. Is when do we think it's, I think the first question is, when do we think it's wise to have competitions for instruments that are that are scarce? So when we talk about limited authorization schemes, subsidies, those type of things, and land. 
and public contracts, of course, and concession contracts, is when is it useful to have those co competitive uh, obligations and when do we actually have them, right, in, in the law from a legal, uh, legal perspective. Um, so that's really what, what sparked my attention. And then I posted about this case on Twitter. Uh, some people responded and they said, amongst which Albert, and they said, look, hey, we'd love to learn more about it. So then I kind of felt, noblesse oblige, Felt like I had to say something about it, and then I forced you to do it as well. So there we are. <laughs> there we are. No, I think that the interesting points surrounding these considerations are also um, around the the fundamental issue um, underlying the sort of logic behind public procurement often, which is, you know, you're spending public money. So there is a need for particular transparency and the fact that you really uh, conduct the business in a really reasonable way with respect of the sort of economical efficiency, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the same argument very easily can be used in the context of selling anything, right? So when you're selling something, you still, you still sort of deal with public assets. So there is still sort of public money in the, in the pool. So it, to to exaggerate it purposely, if you kind of sell it for, you know, one euro to your brother-in-law, then that's obviously quite problematic, right? And if, if, if there is a certain competitive aspect of it, that that sort of should, again, get the best deal to, to, to use our language, our procurement language here, right? to the to the uh, public authority, contracting authority, whoever is the the the, the um, institution that sells things. And another sort of correlated aspect to it that actually we don't talk about it these days maybe that much um, because this whole new things about digitalization, SDG, sustainability, climate change really takes over in many ways aspects of, of, of procurement. But... Um, but another aspect of it is that uh, the concession uh, for a long time, particularly service concession, were really at the forefront of, of, of the topics that are being discussed by the Court of Justice, that ultimately uh, right now we have a codification of service concession. But a lot of a lot of attention have been in the past given to this conversation about things that are sort of covered, not covered, maybe, and to what extent the treaty principles apply still to this and 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 so not. So talk us through, sorry, because I think I jumped, uh, you, ha you had a comment. <laughs> <laughs> so there are advantages to seeing each other a little bit. I was on the tip of my chair uh, right here to, to mention something. I, 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 th I think you made two val really valid points. And I think particularly the first one, I think it's always felt a bit inconsistent when I heard about this, particularly when I first started work uh, in public procurement law is why do we not regulate sales? So because in a way, just to add to your logic, right? Because your argument, if, if I paraphrase it right, there's something of economic value that could still could st still be sold for a bad price. So mm. that the interest is the same as when you buy something. But also that you could still also raise the internal market perspective on that, right? So the, if you're selling a big military base, which would be really nice for hipsters to have beautiful apartments or for... Um, if you're selling land for development for whatever social purpose where artists can read can 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 have their atelier or whatever you know this just for different types of purposes the idea could be the same you might want that to happen sustainably as well you might want to include social consideration and the interest of, from abroad could definitely be there as well so just to add to what you were saying i think it's interesting that i, I don't find that discussion perhaps it's a bridge too far right eh? because it is 
impeding again on the discretion of, of contracting authorities or selling authorities, I should say, uh, to, to do whatever they want. Uh, but in a way, it's incon it feels inconsistent. Yeah, I think that the one more aspect to it that I would also add is that, you know, another layer that, that is in this is also just public interest, right? So if that is sort of in, in line of some sort of version of procurement or it, it's it's not necessary. I think we don't argue necessarily that it should be under procurement or, or but but the whole notion also that, well, you're again dealing with some sort of public assets and public money. Um, if you're doing that um, in, in particularly somehow negligent way or in particularly um, sort of corrupt way or whatever else wrong we can imagine i think that public has 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 right to know right so so i think that there is a for sure aspect of it um that underlines our conversation but then with this sort of broad intro that we yeah. hope that with this intro what we try to, to do is to sort of link to our listeners that even that we're not discussing strictly a procurement case, there is a correlation. And I think one last aspect here is also to point out, because we're actually moving broadly with procurement regulation to sort of going a step further than saying how you buy something to also to a certain extent, we, we slowly entering the space of saying what you are to buy, right? With this minimum green requirements, et cetera, et cetera. So, so also up here, um, very theoretically sort of discussing how, how far we can uh, broaden the procurement kingdom, potentially. So, <laughs> so, Willem, without further ado, can you give us a little bit of context, background, and what this case in Netherlands uh, was about and why it springs some sort of discussion and question and, and why it seems to be a sort of hot topic in your neck of the woods? So I kind of feel like now we're trying to make ourselves more important than we actually are. But um, <laughs> let's, um, I'll, I'll still with that introduction where you set the bar so high, I'll do my best. So basically, <clears throat> I would say the main legal question in this case was, should a Dutch public authority uh, abide by the principles of good administration, which would include principles of equality and transparency, which are vested in Dutch public law? Uh, should they abide by them when they sell land? And then does that mean that if you want to abide by them, uh, does that mean that you need to set up some type of competition? Which would mean that direct awards of land, so when I say awards, because clearly that's our terminology, but di directly sell to one individual without any type of competitive procedure, uh, is that non-compliant with the law, all right? So basically, the, the, the factor is follows, and I was happy to hear there were supermarkets because it kind of made me feel like it fitted with our theme of <laughs> after-conference dinners. Um, so there's a municipality called Montferland, and at first I had these thoughts of making you say Montferland, but then, you know, I, I'll leave it at that. Um, it's near uh, Arnhem, Nijmegen, perhaps familiar to people east, the east <laughs> of the that Netherlands. that tells us a lot, right? <laughs> Well, Arnhem and Nijmegen, if you're interested in the Second World War about that, that there might there might spark there some might market garden yeah. thoughts. But that's the region that we're in, a bit more to the east even. We're close to the German border, just to set the scene. And basically, that municipality had set out to sell a plot of land to a single real estate developer uh, who wanted to establish a supermarket in the heart of that town, right? Um, and another... A developer had also shown interest <clears throat> who wanted to, to establish another type another type of supermarket. The first one was a co-op. The other one was an Albert Heine competitor. 
And um, the municipality decided to go for the first one, uh, which meant that it was directly given the sale or sold, I should say, to the first developer. And um, surprise, surprise, the, the second one filed a lawsuit claiming that there should have been some type of competitive, there is a competitive obligation and it sh the, 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 the direct sale of land was illegitimate under Dutch uh, law. Now, what was interesting is it went through the district court, court of appeals, the advocate general at the Supreme Court, they were all aligned and they said there is no competitive obligation. <clears throat> And then, of course, the um, the Supreme Court decided the contrary, um, which has, uh, you say, hot topic, but I think that's the only thing we'll be talking about this year in 2022 okay. in uh, in the public procurement context in the Netherlands. Because even though the, the judgment, I think, is quite accessible, and unfortunately, it's not available in English, but Google Translate helps. And, and if anyone has questions, I'd be happy to help, of course, but um, it's very short and quite concise. So I think uh, Google Translate will help. I think we'll, I'll post the um, the link to the case in the blog post that comes with the um, with the episode. Um, so basically, that's the setting that we're in. It's kind of also it feels a bit like a classic public procurement scenario, right? I know we're not supposed to say it is, but it's the competitor not being happy, filing filing a claim, and then you know asking and saying basically you violated the law. This should have been put up for a competitive procedure or a tender, right? But can I just can you just clarify for me just to make absolute sure? So when they when they refer to the breach of the law, what law are they citing as as being in a breach? Yeah, so they're basically saying that in the Dutch Civil Code, uh, Article three fourteen, so Book three, Article fourteen, it says that um, when executing competences based on um, on public law. You're not allowed to violate um, those public law principles, written or unwritten. And one of those written ones are principles of good governance, which, you know, inform generally the uh, principle of due care, principle of, um, uh, of openness and transparency. So the general administrative principles okay, so that's interesting. that apply to so you all all, all the functioning of, of public authorities. Okay, so it's sort of got, is the interesting, I think, part for some of our listeners also is like the combination of legal sources because you go through civil code to administrative law, actually, right? Which is also yeah. very procurement-like because it's this combination between public and private law that we're dealing with, right? Yeah, for okay. sure. And what then so, the, the Supreme Court, uh, what the Supreme Court sort of debated within that case? What was particularly interesting here then? So particularly interesting is, I think it's uh, um, sometimes we we uh, we tend to say that judges or lawyers in general or scholars are very um, vague and they live behind their facades. But this is an incredibly accessible judgment, uh, short to the point, and it basically says it starts off by re-emphasizing what we just said: is this is not something that falls under the public procurement directives or the Dutch Public Procurement Act. This is something that falls within Chapter 4, Article 14, or sorry, Chapter 3, Article 14. And <clears throat> basically, we need to decide if these principles apply and if they mean anything in this context. And the, the Supreme Court confirms both. So the Supreme Court first says the principle of equality means equal chances in this case. And it requires public authorities to create, and I quote here, well, not in English, but in Dutch, a competitive space, right? 
Mm -hmm. So open and market a little bit in, in our context, yeah, right? There needs to be a competitive space. And that if, if and this is the condition, there are one or more operators uh, interested, sorry, more than one interested. So you need to have multiple interests, so, such as is the case here, right? You have two developers that want to establish a supermarket. And then I think what the court does very well is it kind of anticipates what that means, right? Because uh, clearly just saying that there needs to be some type of uh, competitive space is still very vague. Instantly, public procurement comes to mind, but we'll talk about that a bit later. But the court actually says, well, at least you're required to set up criteria that are objective, verifiable, and reasonable. I hear suki di frutta run through yeah, my head straight yeah. away. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's not the exact same wording, but it, it does kind of resemble that type of um, that idea. And it requires openness, when it's for transparency, uh, in relation to the procedure, time schedules, selection criteria. Uh, it, you need to give due consideration so that, and this is also important and I stress that, potentially interested or interested parties can make notice of it. So I see the link again with potentially interested parties also when we talk about, you know, in, the internal market thoughts. Mm. Um, and... Uh, the only exemption that exists based on this duty of tender is that there's only one party interested. So if you know that there's only one, then you can just directly award the, the land. You can sell the land directly. But what that means in the context of this requirement sort of, of transparency, right? Because, of course, argument here could be, well, if you just know about one and you just give it to one, if you if, if you would fulfill that transparency, a version of that transparency that you inform the market, there might be more than one, right? I think you can work in Dutch practice. You've just, um, <laughs> you're more than, so this was also, this is one of these. So I think what's interesting is to highlight some of the, you know, outstanding legal questions based on this. Because I think you're touching on a very important point is how do you then know, right? Because mm. I think it would mean that you need to publish it at least. So there would be some type of publication requirement. If that's not the case, then maybe there's an obligation to um, have a, a to, to, to undertake a market consultation, but that would also require publication, right? So it really depends on what it is, but I think the minimum, the bare minimum is just publication, right? Same in public procurement, like you're obligated to to publish, but it could actually be smart to also consult the market in some type of way to establish what's on offer, how to set up the procurement, etc. Yeah, well, I think that it's for sure this, you know, combination between what is a good practice and what is the minimum sort of due diligence or the minimum legal standards to fulfill your basic requirements um, from from sort of regulatory perspective. And and this really, again, reminds us a lot about the procurement cases on, on service concessions, right? Because this is very much repeating these notions of what treaty principles you need to establish, right? Or, or which treaty principles you need to secure. And the bare minimum of some sort of form of advertisement is it's usually has always been uh, classified as, as something that that you would need to you would need to at least to do that even if then later on you don't really follow a very structured procurement process so so this is very interesting what you're describing because it is a little bit like a mirror right on this sort of from buying to it, selling in many ways it, it feels like that and also it's um, 
you can't help but think that the court at least knows what public procurement is. I mean, mm. I'd like to think that they know, but like that they're aware of how these competitive procedures are set up in public procurement law. Uh, even though the Dutch Supreme Court hasn't ruled on many public procurement cases, it the question that pops up, we talk about outstanding questions, is public procurement law the blueprint? It It's clearly a different scenario, right? It's clearly not the same, but should we look for inspiration when we look at public procurement law, when we talk about time schedules, right? When the court says there's, they need to be criteria, need to be reasonable. Does that mean that we use the, the, the timelines and schedules mm. of what we've established in public procurement law? I think many lawyers would suggest look to for go that. with that. Yeah, because I think there are two things. One is that the language that is used, exactly as you mentioned, it's very like, EU, internal market, freedoms, sort of language, and, and, and the type of sort of referencing to transparency, open sort of sort of competition indirectly. It almost seems like someone who was preparing that judgment, right, sort of read through how this works in procurement and sort of said, okay, well, this sort of seems like a bit of a reasonable approach to it. Um, yeah. So there is for sure um, linkage, to, or, or we could argue that there is some sort of help and also if you would be a counsel to advise that probably that would be something that you say you know again this is like we kind of driving in the dark but it can be a good good sort of way if that works for buying maybe it will work also for 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 selling here right yeah for sure but the, the thing is is um yeah if you're a counsel then advising like you say you could also say well the court explicitly says that this is not a public procurement matter mm. so that that's an it's an easy so it'll be interesting to see what the follow-up of case law is is when even though i i do like how the court has kind of foreseen the issues that would happen if you say there needs to be some type of competitive space or there needs to be some type of room to to, to have these competitive um, uh, procedures. Uh, it's clear that this obligation would be something that is important because then you're not dealing with contracting authority, but with the Dutch term of public, or sorry, public authority, meaning bestuursorgaan, uh, which would mean that, you know, the state, municipalities, water boards, provinces, and also those atypical ones, the non-traditional ones, right? They would also fall under this obligation. So, any type of government with land is likely to, uh, to, uh, or very, very much likely to have to abide by this this duty. That's one, um, and and then there's two major things that still are still outstanding. Is what happens to current contracts? Yeah, that or was current about sale where of was, land. Oh, that was exactly what I was about to ask. Right, what is the impact of that judgment ultimately on the on the Netherlands practice right now? How this is read in context of what's already happened and happening right now. It's unclear. There's there's some case law that that actually states that the contract, those contracts or those bills that that you know bill of rights that to to sell it have actually are null and void. But there's also some that argue de- otherwise. So there's the the case law is not clear on this. Mm. So that's I think one subject that will be dealt with in the future. But also, I think it's very likely because this this development doesn't come fall out of thin air and that's the last thing that i think is important to note is uh, without having to explain the whole structure of of dutch legal protection there are two high high courts yeah (laughs) so one a general supreme court and one for specific matters uh, mostly related to public law and i'm generalizing now and my colleagues will kill me if i say it like this but that's i think helpful both have very authoritative highest 
uh, authority to, 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 to make these rulings. The other, the, the Centrale Raad voor Beroep voor Bedrijfsleven, I'll get you to repeat that later on, um, has ruled in, in light of limited authorization schemes that there's an obligation to have such competitive space. What the Supreme Court has done, it's actually referred in its judgment to that other high court, which is, well, not unique, but it's it's quite interesting because their lines could be uh, could vary as well, right? There's no binding authority on these courts um, to follow each other. So we already had it, this competitive space in limited authorization schemes. There's quite a lot of work that's gone into that also academically so far. Um, so we have limited authorization schemes. We have land now. We already had public contracts and concession contracts. But I think there's an easy spillover to uh, ground lease, building rights, anything that has economic value where there is some type of scarcity. I think nothing's safe anymore. Mm. So, And it's also sparked a debate about, yeah, what do we need? Do we really need all these competitive obligations and are they useful? Kind of coming back to what I started with. Um, is basically that any transaction with the government is under an obligation to um, to uh, um, to tender or to set up a competitive uh, type so, of procedure. So, so that is very interesting. And and as we discussed, uh, sort of pre-starting our recording, we actually thought that this might be a good opportunity to utilize the network of this podcast and and sort of conclude with a certain call for action to sounds very hyped. So Willem, I will let you to do the call for action. Cool. I'll be, I'll be careful to note call to action in my emails to you later on. Um, <laughs> my call to action would be for those people interested in this topic and also listening is I'd be really interested to hear what your one legislative framework is for the sale of land. And if there are similar cases that perhaps the Netherlands is not unique, maybe we should temper our excitement as lawyers now or our distress as public authorities. Perhaps this is common knowledge or common good to regulate sales as well as, as purchasing. right? And I'd love to then know the nitty gritty as far as you have time to do that. But that would be my dare I say, call to action. Um, what does your member state do? What does your country do uh, outside of the European Union in terms of sales instead of procurement? I'd love to hear that. Yeah, because I think that this is, again, one of those things that hopefully we can maybe exchange some practices, experiences. And, and there is a good chance that if Netherlands struggle with this right now as a, as a sort of tricky aspect, that um, other member states might have the same problem at their hands and Maybe there's some interesting approach that we can share. So with with that, we uh, will just say we would love to hear from you. Um, if you have thoughts, ideas or Send examples, yeah. uh, we would be super grateful. And um, with that, I would also now want to move to our second part of our podcast. And that is the dessert. So if you by any chance tuning in for the first time or you didn't hear it for some time, the concept of this podcast is to first discuss this nitty gritty, interesting, geeky procurement aspect. But we also work with a lot of young researchers. We are also part of this academic culture. So in the second part of our podcast, when we discuss dessert, it's a little bit more connected with academic life and if that is connected with teaching with mentoring with sort of trying to give a good advice to our younger selves uh, and by any chance maybe help someone that's what we're trying to do so today for our dessert topic 
uh, we wanted to discuss networking for young academics. So we actually did a little bit of this type of call for actions. We ask on our social media um, to our listeners uh, whether they have some ideas what we should discuss. And that was one of the of the suggestions. So we would want to pick it up and, and shout out. I think that was Federica's, wasn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So thank you, Federica, for chipping in with your suggestions and we picking up on that. Um, so yeah, throwing the ball to you, Willem, when we're talking about networking for young academics, I guess the underlying emphasis here is on the young academics um do you think that there is a maybe a little bit different approach what i mean by that whether the young academic may be a little bit more stressed about networking in academia what you would advise what were your or like good practices or what worked for you or maybe what we love in this podcast is to share with the absolute disastrous approach of saying do not do that (laughs) (laughs) because we did it because we Uh, did it exactly and it didn't work um well i think the first thing is is um i find i don't know if you have that too actually but um networking has always seemed as a bit of a dirty word in academia is that correct or not that's true that's true. It's you somehow of a less of an academic if you're a good networker. I yeah, guess. if you're, um, but I, I, it's it's always an awkward part. I find particularly yeah. when it's like part of uh, a program or something, and then so so in, in academia, I find that it it's never really seen as something that is has. Well, everyone understands its value, but it can't be a sole objective because then you're too commercially minded. That's my interpretation mm. so far, but I don't agree with that. Um, no, I think I, it's also quite old school. Yeah, you yeah, know, but, it's very yeah. kind of old school. Is this like we are a separate, almost like societal class, and we need yeah. to be very, very posh, and we need to be very. It's almost like if you're a professor that is sort of down to earth and reachable to your students and whatever, you are less that you're supposed to be a bit mysterious. So yeah, I think you're not that cool that's, enough. Yeah. yeah. So I think that is a bit old school. Also, we we sort of learn all on on experiences how lonely this job also is, and and how much literally everyone that we know on all levels of this career feel at least once in a while like um imposter syndrome yeah. having an imposter syndrome mm-hmm. so i think that it changes a little bit yeah yeah so i think step one is to acknowledge that networking is normal not dirty or whatever it's just you know it's part and parcel of reaching out and it's also super vital for good research right to reach out useful. to your so useful so yeah. useful so just to research to whether it's peers, so other academics or whether they're private stakeholders or whether they're NGOs or social enterprises or government officials, whoever would you know be relevant to speak to, I think that's that's it's it's super important to do it. So that would be I think the the second one is that and like you say, it also can help you get out of perhaps a little bit of an individual bubble that can be quite depressing at times as well. So I think that that helps. Um, so I think we've established it's important. Is that what we've done so far? So I just... think I think we did, and I think that we also what what we're trying to do, I guess, is also to say, you know, it's not something because I feel like exactly as you said, is a bit dirty word. This sort of sales person type of like sort of thing that you're trying to impose yourself on other people and whatever. And and I don't think that we need to change a certain mind mindset around that and i think that you know i would go as far as saying you know having a good network that you can really utilize and by saying utilize again i'm not meaning that in a 
dirty work of sort of trying to abuse someone, trying to take advantage of someone, but sort of use the network that you have the same way that you give into that network, the same way as you asking uh, for help is, 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 is usage of the same type of, you know, resources as reading blogs and books and anything else. You know, if, if something collaterally comes up from, I don't know, defense procurement in my research, or I can try to spend, you know, a week of trying to really get into the subject and find nitty gritty. Or I can pick up a phone to a couple of colleagues that I know that sit and do that and ask them. And that probably is much more resource efficient sort of uh, spending of my time, right? So I think that yeah. the, the key thing, I think, also for the young researchers that do not have much experience with that, I think that you really need to acknowledge that you need to give to your network the same way that you kind of ask to get. So if I would imagine giving someone who continuously, you know, shoot me and shoots me an email or gives me a call, bumps to my office, asking for something all the time. And then, you know, on the odd occasion, I may ask, oh, could you let me know what you thought about X, Y, and Z? And they don't have time. If it's not very reciprocal, reciprocal, relationship i think that that can come off a bit off but i don't know whether yeah. that's just my perspective or whether you agree too yeah for sure and i think that's also maybe that's also part of the follow-up right you've established that they're part of your network what i did and i'm not saying that's that's the the way to go it helped me and during my phd was just to make a list of everyone that's published on the subject that i was interested in or that i was researching that kind of got me the academic list of people that were involved. I'm not saying that those would then be the most important people to contact or to at least discuss your research with, but at least they provide an interesting angle or way in. I did that the same with societal actors, with government officials. Uh, so I went about it quite regular, rigorously. I just made lists and then I just sent them emails. Mm. I said, hey, this is, um, I see you published this a while back. I was wondering if you're still involved in that. I'm doing my research here. I'd love the opportunity to chat. And I find that um, even though that can be scary at times to just, because it kind of feels like cold calling, right? Like you work yeah. at a call center. Um, I've, ne I've always had responses. I mean, some people, the, there was a bit of a delay, right? Because people tend to, tend to have a lot on their plates. But everyone loves receiving emails that they've, where they actually feel like their work's been read, it's valuable, and that someone's asking for help as well, right? To be a sparring partner or, yeah. Yeah, I think that I would say there are about two or three layers to it. I think as a young researcher, what I would always advise and where I also got the most you know, sort of value out of network is really actually networking a lot with other PhDs and also PhDs that might be just a little bit older and by older, I mean in the in the years of experience of doing PhD. I don't mean like your age. I mean like if you're in the first year sort of chatting with people that are finishing their PhDs or yeah. things like that. Because I think that the gap there is not that big and somehow you feel a little bit more comfortable, but they can already really advise you and give you some good hints. And, and, and sort of building that um, network around me, I, I felt that that gave me a certain layer of confidence. So I would definitely advise that. And that's something that I always try to do to my PhDs is try to get them connected with as many other PhDs that I know. And then in regards to, you know, a, a sort of more senior researcher and other stakeholders, I think that this is, uh, this is, 
I don't know whether you should have a different approach, but what I just bear with me and tell me if I don't make any sense, villain. But I sort of feel like when you talk to researchers, the things like you that you describe, for example, that you said, oh, you know, I read your piece on X, Y, and Z. Um, I'm sort of dealing with something similar. I, I, you know, I wasn't sure. Could you tell me what you think about X, Y? Like actually starting as some sort of discussion or question that could be really interesting or just sort of saying, you know, I'm working with something similar. I would be really interested. Would you have time for, you know, a quick sort of Zoom coffee or whatever? I would just want to introduce myself. Because what's the worst thing that can happen? They can just not respond. I trust me, like, I don't think that I know anyone who would get a very angry email or dismissive email. Like that doesn't happen. Everyone loves loves it. Like I said, they loves that. Yeah, I don't know if it's something deeper psychologically or something that everyone loves being an expert or something. But when well, you hear on, that on, someone's read it, it's great. Exactly. I think that's the part that you sort of realize that some. It's the same when we hear when people and we talk about it, right? That people talk to us and say, "Oh, great, your podcast," and they say it's so nice to hear that people actually listen. And that is then. <laughs> and that is. Don't get ahead of, of yourself, Marta. Not that many people listen to this podcast, but yeah, keep going. Well, you know, for me, hearing that more than than like our spouses and our two like friends, work friends, listen to it, anything beyond yeah. that for me is you know, world world domination. Uh, but then, <laughs> but then specifically when it comes to stakeholders, I think st- stakeholders, and by that I mean uh, everyone else outside of academia. I think that that at time can be a bit tricky because particularly, you know, procurers and, and, and other stakeholders, they are super, super busy very often. And I kind of feel, or my advice always is that you, you kind of want to go to them when you also can kind of offer them some something or s- s- showcase to them some type of value to sort of say, you know, I'm working on this, you know, the outcome of this will be X, Y, and Z, I'm hoping, which could be helpful to you in that in that yeah. way. Because I think that they sort of perceive us as, you know, sort of some sort of other tire of, of doing something. And I think for them, it's a little bit more important to showcase how, how them spending time with you makes sense. But that might be also this sort of like a corporate mentality that I have that I also try to always try to think okay like if i ask you know question that's beneficial to me because x y and z but how i can sort of return the favor if you answer the question what i can offer to you to be helpful to your um to your part right yeah so So, and even just to just to drop the I, i think you're right it's always you have to give a little bit in the relationship but then again i think from what i experienced is that's sometimes can feel like a bit of a burden because you're like i'm just doing my phd what can i really offer it's already a bit scary so i won't approach them yeah but i always find that when someone says phd or junior researcher like everyone's willing to help i don't know it's like this warm bath right it it, it, as long as you have clearly in mind that like you say so in my case okay i'm working on my phd i'm working on in-house and public public cooperation you might struggle with those issues. Can, can you tell me what those issues are? And then I can take it into account when I do my research. And then maybe in a couple of years, you'll yeah. get an answer. Yeah. Right? Yeah. But I think it's also, and then the last point, because I do think that this is not specific again to maybe young researchers, but maybe that's sign of age. And if that is, please, dear listeners, forgive me. Uh, but I feel like we in general sort of got a little bit less and less polite in our written 
communications as a society. I don't know if this is sort of post-COVID or whatever, we want to be that efficient. But I think this, particularly if you kind of ask someone for something that ultimately is a bit of a favor, because it might be that someone is, you know, has certain knowledge or experience that you would want to just be extra nice when you get in touch, right? And, you know, politeness and niceness just gets you gets you everywhere it's the same thing as as Willem is saying it's like people in generally are very welcoming and I think it's a little bit like when Willem was uh telling me let's do this podcast and we and and the first sort of week when I was sort of thinking about it I was like oh my god people will hear what I'm saying it will be a bunch of nonsense it will be tragic it will be terrible and you know Uh, what the first two times i didn't sleep afterwards and i wanted to re-edit everything but the notion of that is the more that you do it the the less you kind of get paralyzed by it we are just human so it's all good yeah for sure oh that's a is that just not a beautiful way to end this podcast episode i think we're just we're just humans um just just give it a go just give it a go yeah, that's just we're just humans. Just give it a go. I think. That, shall we close it? Leave it at that. I would just ask you, just because of we tend to be a bit rambly. Um, if so, if we are to bubble it up all with a nice or wrap it up with a nice sort of bow. So, what would be some technique strategies if you would give very um, tangible three advices for the young researchers about approaching networking? What what those could be? Uh, the first one that we haven't really discussed that it's, it's conferences, meeting people live, right? But we talked about that. We talked yeah, about conferencing then, before, yes. so maybe have a listen to that episode. If you like someone's work and it's relevant to yours, shoot them an email, make it, uh, ask them the question, what you're actually struggling with in your research, link it to their expertise. And like you said, Marta, give it a call to action. Say, do you want to catch up for coffee? Do you have time for that? Of course, in a polite, uh, polite way, because I mean, not everyone likes that. You know, it's, it's just the it's just the way of the world. Yeah, and I think those are two very tangible points, and I think they were tested by I think both of us. And this is how we met actually with Willem. Willem just shoot me an email and say, "Hey, do you want to get a coffee online?" But did I say something nice though? That's the, did I? Well, that's if you wouldn't say something <laughs> nice, we wouldn't be talking there. So we will wrap it up with that. That's your three very tangible, hopefully uh, concrete strategies how to approach it. Let us know whether you think that that was anyhow helpful or not. Um, that's it. That was Bestech Public Procurement Podcast. This was Bestech, the Public Procurement Podcast. Do you want to contribute to today's discussion? Then share your thoughts on LinkedIn or Twitter. Do you have an idea for a future episode? Write to us at www.bestechpodcast.com. 